Hi, this is Stephen. Be sure to visit Hollywood and Beyond on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for guest and show news, including exclusive photos, promos, trailers, as well as additional guest and show news. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the pages so that we can keep in touch with each other. Hollywood and Beyond, your home for meaningful interviews. Hi, this is Deborah Trinelli. You may remember me as Bobby Ewing's secretary, Phyllis Wapner on Dallas. You are listening to the Dallas 40th Anniversary Celebration here on Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham. Enjoy the show. Previously on Dallas. Jock, let me handle my father. He's not your problem. He's mine. Ray, I don't know how to put this. So just spit it out. He's not your daddy. I am. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. And welcome to the 40th anniversary celebration of television's most epic and iconic primetime television show of all time, Dallas. On April 2nd, 1978, CBS aired the first episode of Dallas titled Digger's Daughter. And Bobby Ewing is seen driving his new bride, Pamela Ewing, to South Fork Ranch, home of the Ewing family. The rest, as they say, is history. Over the years, Dallas would offer unforgettable characters, including that of South Fork Ranch foreman Ray Krebs, portrayed in a phenomenal performance by Steve Canaley. The blue-collar, hard-working character quickly won over the hearts of millions, eventually becoming publicly acknowledged as Jock Ewing's son. Take a sentimental trip back to South Fork Ranch today as I welcome the actor who gave an outstanding performance as Ray Krebs, actor Steve Canaley. Steve, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for the lovely introduction. Nice to talk to you. Well, it's wonderful to talk to you. You are most welcome, certainly deserved. And you know, Steve, uh, many listeners out there may be curious as to where you are from, so I thought I would start off by asking just that. Where are you from, and where did you grow up in? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles in a, a community called Van Nuys. Uh, I used to say as a joke that I got all my rodeo experience uh, on cruise nights on Wednesday nights on uh, Van Nuys Boulevard. <laughs> oh, so um, it was it was unlikely that I would end up uh, uh, playing a cowboy, but it was not unlikely that I might end up in the film business, given there was so much of it in the Los Angeles area. 
Absolutely. And I'm just curious, what type of films when you were growing up or movies did you enjoy going to see? Like, did you have a favorite type of movie? Was it Westerns or, or action or drama? So television was new in my childhood, and uh, we didn't even have a TV for a long time. But then a friend, his father was uh, a television repairman, and he had television galore, and we would watch them in their garage together. And, and at the time, there was not a lot of new programming, but there was a lot of old westerns. And we'd, we'd watch old westerns and old movies, old historical movies, old movies from the 30s and 40s uh, all day long sometimes. And I really, really enjoyed movies. And, and then I would go see, uh, in the films, recent releases, uh, we, I liked things that were action-oriented. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, The Vikings was a movie I, I remember being up with. Uh, uh, I think that was what, Kurt Douglas? Kirk Douglas, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was a big movie for me. I remember I liked that one a lot. And I, and I love John Ford movies and Howard Hawks and all those old Hollywood directors. So um, not not so different than a lot of other people, I suppose. But I, I really did enjoy Westerns, and, and I loved uh, uh, cowboy television series as they became popular on television. And I suppose my all-time favorite was Hopalong Cassidy. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I have pictures of myself sort of dressed up as my mother made a costume that emulated his costume. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, you know, Roy Rogers and uh, all, all that genre was, was what was early in television in the 50s. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. You know, me growing up in the 80s as a young boy, I also loved enjoying watching Westerns on the weekend in particular. Um, as cable was kind of emerging, they just seemed to be so many Westerns on. So I definitely enjoyed those as well. And is this how your interest in acting first developed by watching these films? Uh, no, not at all. Um, but having an appreciation for films and movies was was part of how it worked out that I became an actor. Um, I was a, a veteran from the Vietnam War, having just returned home to California and returning to college. I was able to land a really nice position running a gun club where you shoot trap and skeet targets. Uh, and one of my clients was a writer at the time, a young guy just out of SC. He was writing a screenplay about uh, the Vietnam War, and I was a, a technical advisor to him regarding portions of the story. Uh, the movie was later made by another director, Francis Coppola, and it was called Apocalypse Now, so it's quite a famous film. Uh, my involvement was working in regards to the parts that Robert Duvall played as a commanding officer of the 1st Air Cav, and I was an Air Cav soldier and had a lot of operations and had some expertise in that area. So that's, that's how I kind of got near films. Uh, and uh, that person, John Milius, um, wrote another film called um, Judge Roy Bean. And suggested to the director that he had a friend that would be good for one of the parts. And uh, uh, the director, John Houston, said, well, have him in for a meeting. 
And so uh, there I was and uh, had this nice conversation with John Houston. We talked about shooting and hunting and being in the service and art and had this nice conversation. Then he finally said, well, what do you think, Steve? How'd you like to be in this movie? I said, if you don't care if I've never done it before, sir, I, I, I'd love to give it a try. So that's where it started, and that was in uh, 19... Uh, early 70s, days. I believe. What? Yeah, 1972, 70, maybe? 1970, 71 is when we yes. made it, I think. Yeah. And uh, I went on this picture with no training, never, never had acted in anything in my life. Wow. But I was an artist, and I just kind of convinced myself that I could, and I was, you know, I got through the Vietnam War. I felt I could do a lot of things after that. Uh, and I, I decided that instead of a brush and a canvas, that uh, it was now me. I was, I was it, and I had to adjust how I walked and thought and talked and what could I do to create this character. And I, I approached it in my own way, and... You know, I was on the picture for not for one week, which was my guarantee, but I was on for 12 weeks and the length of the film. And everybody, uh, Paul Newman and uh, John Houston, uh, said, hey, you did a good job, kid. Uh, if you want to take a shot at this, I think you might have a chance. So with that, I decided to be an actor. What a way to start, Steve, <laughs> with John Huston as your director, uh, Paul Newman in the film, and and that's oh. just that's just amazing. And and you, a future cast member, was also in that film that would eventually be on Dallas, and that's Victoria Principal. Yes, that's absolutely true, and it was uh, one of her, if not the first film for her as well. Oh wow. Um, you know, we didn't come across each other's paths for many years <laughs> Yes, <laughs> until, until the first episode of Dallas, uh, where uh, uh, I've been cast as the ranch foreman, and she's the, the outside girl marrying the son of the Ewings, and, and that's the beginning of our, of our television series, and I uh, hadn't really seen her since that time, so uh, it was very coincidental and interesting, and and how did you first learn about this uh, opportunity to audition for Ray Krebs? Was that the first character, or perhaps was there another character that you were eyeing? I, I you know, I got a phone call from uh, an agent, and uh, he said, "There's, there's three characters that uh, they're thinking you could play, and they haven't made up their minds. It's a family, and they're, and they're trying to like put faces together and and and." make this family. So uh, with the briefest description of J.R. and Bobby and the cowboy uh, Ray, I'm going over there thinking about Bobby Ewing. And um, I get to the office at Warner Brothers, and there's a really an office full of young ingenue blonde girls that are there to read for the Lucy role. And uh, I know one, and I ask her if I can borrow a script briefly, and I whip through it as fast as I can before my meeting, and there's Ray in the hayloft with Lucy. Then there's Ray's girlfriend marrying the son. Then there's the older brother and Ray conspiring to break up the marriage. Well, Ray flies a helicopter, and they live on the big ranch, and he's the cowboy. And I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this is great. 
this is a great, this character has got all kinds of things going on with it. And, uh, you know, I started thinking about all my Western experience, and I, and I went in with this sort of bravado uh, to meet Leonard Katzman and the producer, Michael Feilerman. And I said, you know, I, I came up, I drove over here thinking about Bobby Ewing, but I, I'm, in, I'm in love with this guy, Ray Krebs. I think this is a great character. I'd love to play this cowboy. And um, I said, well, come back in a couple of days and read for us. And when I came back, I was, I was in character. I think I had on the clothes that I wore in the first episode. And uh, I had this guy down from, from day one. It just felt really natural to me. And I knew what I wanted to do with the character. I knew where I was going to try and take him. And, uh, you know, it wasn't always going my way, but eventually I got a lot of what I wanted into the show. And that was, as you suggested, sort of the everyday guy, the blue-collar worker, the, the guy that he just seems like you know him. Or he's like so much like somebody that you did know. But he, he, had, he carries your burden, or he makes your day good. Yes, excellent description. And one of the magical things about Dallas was it was casted so well right from the beginning. And you wound up playing a character that you felt very connected to. And um, and I had heard that Ken Kershaw has was eyeing your character early on in the audition yeah. process. That's right. Kenny wanted to play the cowboy also. <laughs> and, um, you know, he would have had his own wonderful version of it, I'm sure. Sure. Uh, sure. But uh, uh, they didn't see that for Kenny. Uh, I, I during the 40th anniversary celebration, something came out that I was never aware of. Uh, and about 40 years later, to find out, um, they were thinking of me first for Bobby, even though I said I wanted to play Ray. Oh wow! And um, but somehow it, it you know it, it shifted to Patrick. And, uh, you know, I think they couldn't have made a better choice. And he was, <laughs> I he agree was always, with you. He was always happy. He didn't like being the goody two-shoe guy all the time. But, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, he, did, he did a great job with Bobby. So it's, it's funny, you know, how do, how do you get a show that becomes so successful and all these characters seem like they all fit so well, but so much of it is uh, just good luck or bad luck <laughs> you never know absolutely there's some last minute uh, uh, uh situations occurring and that's a perfect that, example uh, and right. steve um, you know what it's interesting when you think about the very beginning of dallas remember how it started off with this snowy scenery we got snow we got dark gray clouds and it was five episodes uh they call it a mini series but wasn't it really like a, a, an extended pilot to see if this would work for CBS? It was exactly that. And uh, it was written uh, very quickly. Uh, and uh, there wasn't a lot of... Because they had written... Actually, they had written Knott's uh, Landing first. And uh, the network didn't really like Knott's Landing that much to begin with, but they liked something about it. And there was kind of a Western family or character in it. And they said, give it something Western. And with that, uh, Michael Feilerman and uh, David uh, uh, went to work and, and they started thinking about uh, like the movie Giant, uh, 
and the big family and living in a big house and the oil industry and cattle and maybe maybe like a little bit like Peyton Place with some 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 sexy kind of things going on. And uh, they came up with this show. They were they. I don't remember the other names, but it wasn't always going to be called Dallas. <laughs> it ended up being called Dallas. I see. And, uh, and it was and it was written for a time period that was definitely not what we were going to. We went to film our first days uh, in uh, January of nineteen seventy eight. Am I right? Uh, and it was it was like one of the worst winters they'd had in the Dallas area for you know fifty years, and we had snowstorms that repeated and ice storms and terrible driving and working conditions that went on for weeks. Uh, so we were we were really challenged, and it was very very difficult to to do the work and and get it done. But we all we all bonded then and and. Yes. Uh, we became a hard-working team that supported each other, and uh, you know, not not having a lot at that time, or not having a real future at that time. Uh, you know, everybody was just happy to have five jobs or five shows with Lorimar. Uh, so, because you don't know, they were a company that was successful at that time, and people people wanted to to work for them. And isn't it interesting, Steve, that the uh, home setting for the Ewings was not at the Southwark ranch that we would come to know and love, but it was at a different ranch that those first few episodes. Um, and it, it's just, uh, you know, it's interesting when you look at both, uh, you know, ranches, they're very different. And, and uh, I think Southwark ranch has that kind of comfy feel to it that, definite texas feel and the other one was fine but um you know what was it like filming at this ranch i believe it was the cloyce box ranch as far as the official name for the ranch yeah cloyce box owned he was a former uh nfl football player and um it was his ranch that we started off at we never used any interiors in the building oh we only used exterior shots i see Um, they had an interior house that was in Turtle Creek or someplace like that in downtown Dallas. And uh, that's what they created on the sets when we went to work was to match that house. Um, the, when they said, we're going to Dallas, I said, you've got to be kidding me. This is January. You, you know, they have winter. It's not like Southern California. And uh, that's a long ways to go, you know. Can't we go out to, you know, some some movie ranch around the Los Angeles basin someplace like everybody else has for 100 years? Oh, no, we want to add this this note of authenticity by being on film location. Well, I I really, you know, didn't have much I could say about it, but I I didn't think it was going to pan out. And uh, I was wrong. And certainly Leonard Katzman pushed for going on location. I think he liked to be away from the studio. And, uh, <laughs> and he thought that uh, uh, being on the location would add another element to the show, which, as we know, it, it became one of the cast members, basically, the city of Dallas. Absolutely. I always enjoyed all those wonderful shots of the city, Steve, or the ranch. Uh, it just added such a sense of atmosphere to the show. Always um, a, a wonderful experience for the viewers. 
Um, so I, got, did, I have another thing I'd like to share. Sure, uh, please. Regard, regarding the house we ended up with, who belonged to Joe and Natalie Duncan. Um, it was a maybe on 100 acres or 100, 200 acres. It, it was a family uh, horse breeding farm that Joe, the uh, who was a um, he was a a contractor, uh, a residential contractor, a, build, a house builder, and uh, he had he had moved to this area to kind of create this place for his three sons to grow up and uh, have this healthy environment on a ranch. And so it was very much of a, a family style house, and it, it looked so big because it had a three or four car garage that's attached to it. And then you see that the front view of the building, it looks much larger than it actually is. But it really was just a nice family home. Um, yes. And uh, they nobody ever imagined that it was we'd go on, you know, using that home for all those years. <laughs> for many more years. They bought the place for just a, a pocket change at the time. Uh, but they yes. ended up renting it for 14 years. <laughs> Yes. And I'll tell you what, isn't it interesting, Steve, that despite the money, wealth, and power of the Ewing family, there was something, you know, I, I'm from the Midwest, so there's something Midwest, Western about it, as well as Texas, of course, um, something that's just very appealing, kind of like classic furniture, and just all of that I found very appealing, and and uh, I had learned that the uh, first uh, ranch that was filmed, uh, that actually burnt down, I believe, in 1987. Yeah, it did. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a nice building. It was a very unique looking, if you ever see episodes one through five, um, uh, two stories with columns, uh, like a dozen columns across the front, like a deep south someplace. Um, they had a lot of nice things at that ranch, and it was fun to work there. They had an indoor riding arena, which was a uh, you know very useful for filming. And um, oh, they had a lot of water tanks and cattle and you know, horses. I mean, they were they were really oh, wow. kind of set up much more of a ranchy way than uh, the, the South Fork Ranch. I see. And in that first episode, Digger's daughter, which um, what a great start to the series. You know, your character, Steve, at first, you know, a viewer might not be sure what type of character uh, Ray's going to be because he's uh, willing to assist J.R. Ewing in breaking up uh, the newlyweds, Bobby and, and Pam. And uh, I remember that scene at the end. You mentioned it earlier with the helicopter and that little shack near the water. And J.R. brings Bobby in and it's supposed to, to, to show uh, Pamela being with Ray. And uh, that was a very dramatic scene and really set the tone well for uh, the series, I thought. Well, there's a lot of things to say about the dubious character of Ray Krebs, who is having an affair with his employer's not-quite-legal daughter, granddaughter, Lucy, who's 17 at this time. We kind of overlooked that. Um, the setup was a pretty good one, you know, and uh, I just got to share this. If you see episode one, and the, we come to the helicopter, and, and, we, and we go... Ray says it, maybe it's not too late, and oh, she's going, oh, Ray, and he, and he jumps in the water with her. Well, now we're wet, and we get to the shack, and we have to get dried off, and this is when he's going to make his move, and then JR is going to bring uh, Bobby there to break it all up, and all, all that's what you see in the show. Uh -huh. But what you don't see is that 
It was, as I said, winter. Victoria and I already spent a full day filming the same scene without the helicopter uh, in the snow. And it was like, then the network said, well, where's the helicopter? Well, we couldn't fly because it was snowing. So we did this instead. Well, we want the helicopter. So we ended up shooting as it was written. And then the water was so cold that all, we had to break the ice. Oh, my. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't very deep, so I had to kind of collapse when I got into the water. And then we were, like, really cold, and that's a cut. And uh, But then Larry, God bless Larry, he was standing there with... Uh, uh, some whiskey and some blankets, and out we came. And we both had a couple of shots of whiskey and wrapped up. And then we didn't have a lot of comfort things in those days. He had his uh-huh. own van, and we went to Larry's van to get warm. Uh, so <laughs> that's a great story. It was it was, it was quite a, quite a quite a moment. I have a favorite picture of mine is me with Victoria in my arms, and I'm about to jump into the water with her. <laughs> oh wow. Yes, it looked cold, and now it, it even, uh, next time I see uh, that, those clips, uh, I'll realize just how cold it really was. Yeah, it was, it was really one of the biggest winters they ever had, actually. We had, you know, yes. half a dozen snowstorms. And well, tough. I'll tell you what, I remember the moment where Bobby is very angry, and it looks like he may deck JR, and, and Pamela says, no, Bobby, he's your brother. And I'll tell you, the sense of family could be felt immediately. And um, uh, and then to see Larry Hagman say as the car drives away, uh, I miss, you know, uh, uh, underestimated Pam, but I won't make that mistake again. Kind of gives you a glimpse of what Jr. would be all about. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he doesn't let much get by him. <laughs> he sure doesn't. And, and you know, uh, Steve, uh, you know, uh, they would go on to show your character as a hardworking individual. And like you said, a blue collar guy, uh, uh, you know, and uh, it was interesting that uh, early on your character became involved with a senior. She was like the big country western singer of, at the, in Dallas at the time. And this would really change your character's relationship with J.R. big time because of, of what happens. And I was just wondering, the character's name was uh, Garnett McGee. And when you think back to that storyline, um, I remember the moment when Ray finds out that uh, uh, J.R. was uh, secretly seeing her. And you went to confront J.R. And it was very dramatic scene because Ray really let him have it. Well, I, I th- first of all, those kinds of storylines, uh, you know, where you, are what you hope for when you sign up for a television series, and that was that was that one came along, and uh, I was very appreciative, um, and it was something you know that you could dig into. Um, the and that Kate Mulgrew did a very nice job with it. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, it was a pretty realistic kind of storyline, and the, the, they were trying something different. Uh, but then, so, you know, I hadn't really thought of it like you suggested just now, that that really was the turning point for, for Ray and uh, J.R. Uh, you're right. I, it, it was. Uh, because after that, uh, they never trusted each other, and they, they never did any other kind of uh, boy things together. Oh, we went hunting. We had a hunting episode once, but that, that was about it. Yes, Every once in a while, we would team up, but most of the time, yes. they're pretty adversarial. 
You're correct, Steve. Uh, it's interesting. I often thought about, despite uh, differences uh, between Ray and Jr., if it was about family, especially if it meant the honor of, of Jock or Miss Ellie, you know, Ray would be there alongside right. Jr. And I right. always admired that about Ray's character, um, and no doubt about it. And speaking of hunting, you must have read my mind because I wanted to ask you, I'm so excited to ask you, about the episode The Dove Hunt, because I just thought this was so exciting. Uh, the, the Ewing brothers and you and, and Jim Davis as Jock Ewing decided to go on a hunting trip to the wilderness of Louisiana in this small town, and I mean very small, in this uh, bar slash restaurant, I, I guess you could say, an old enemy of Jock's from decades ago. In fact, Jock doesn't even really remember the guy at first, and uh, it results in a big brawl. Well, first of all, that was a very, very exciting scene, and I wanted to ask you, uh, Steve, what was it like uh, filming all of those type of scenes? And I'm talking about the bar fight scenes, because Dallas always had a lot of exciting bar fights, and I'm wondering from a filming standpoint, I mean, it must take a long time to get that all choreographed just right. It does, and uh, I would say that Larry and Patrick and I pretty much love doing those kind of scenes. That we they don't come very often, and it's it's choreographed and it's like a dance. And uh, you know, you 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 do a big master, and then you pick up pieces and, and coverage. Uh, that's the way we did it in those days. Now they shoot with six cameras, but. Um, it, you know, it was something that we all looked forward to. Anytime we had any kind of scenes like that, and it was uh, how, how you know, the challenge physically, and uh, you're working with uh, stunt men, and sometimes they're going to take your position and and uh, do do something that maybe they don't want the actor to do. But um, I, I enjoyed it. it was, I, I liked being physical and something that I brought, you know, to my craft that I felt I had some talent in, and I look forward to to those kind of scenes. You did an excellent job in those scenes, Steve. I really enjoyed the uh, action, and and speaking of that episode, that was a pretty big-time brawl, even though... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jr. wasn't too involved, was he? He, he kind of yeah, liked to stay in the he corner. Hit somebody, he hit somebody over the head with something <laughs> with, his, with his satchel or something like that. That was his extent of the action there. So, but, aside from that action, there is something about that episode. Oh, I, sure. I am a hunter, and, and oh. oddly, Patrick and Larry were both shooting enthusiasts and hunters, also, and we all did this together uh, in our private lives uh, many times. Um, so, and in Texas, hunting is, is a, a major occurrence throughout the state. And dove hunting is something that everybody does. And uh, I kept saying, you know, how about story ideas? Well, how about a rodeo? How about this? How about hunting? You know, how about, a, you know, fishing? That's another big thing Texans do, racetrack. I, I had a lot of suggestions, and this one finally made the list. And, um, you know, it's not really very much about hunting. We just happen to be on a hunting trip when all this other stuff happens. And when Jock gets wounded, he has a dialogue with Jr. to say that he has another wife. I think that's what it was. But before that dialogue... The dialogue was, I have another son. 
they decided at that while we were doing that show that that was not going to go, that the, the, they wanted to hold on to this idea, and they weren't quite ready to break it in. So we did He Had Another Wife. Wow. And next year, in the next season, uh-huh. they bring in a guy that plays Amos Krebs, uh, Ray's supposed father, and uh, this whole storyline comes out, and um, Chuck says, he's not your father, I am. So that made it. That, that was that was huge for me. I was, I was not as happy as I should have been <laughs> on the show. It, I felt I was not being uh, used enough. And, I see. Uh, you know, it was, it was getting away from me. And I, my my background was in films. And you know, I'm every every day that I'm working on a television show, I'm not working in films. So I'm going. Maybe I need to make a change. And I started being very verbal about it. And uh, Larry said, "Oh no, 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 no! Don't leave! Come on, this is, this is a, we're going to be a big hit here. This is going to be something you don't want to walk away from." And uh, you know, we had conversations and we had discussions about uh, what you might do for a story. And uh, you know, the the illegitimate son story was not hard to buy. It was something that Larry and I talked about and and uh, suggested. Mm-hmm. And if we stood together, Jim, Larry, Patrick, and myself, because I had gray hair, I might look a little bit more like Jim than they did. And so it was, it was believable. Anyway, it sure was. that's what they did. That's what they did. And once Ray was a, uh, a member of the family, well, then I was in a lot more scenes and a lot more storylines, and that really solved the problem. Well, like you said, there was that physical... Um you know, there was some re- resemblance there, at least to a certain extent. And yeah, I right. remember uh, a touching episode, Steve. What an amazing performance by you and, and Barbara Belgettis as well. And that was Ewing versus Ewing. Ironically, really, Jim's really last scene, if you don't count the one in the limousine with him waving goodbye. But I'll tell you what, that scene where she accepted Ray... And she admitted that she was resentful that Gary was gone and had blamed him, moment, you know, for a period of time. That was such a beautiful moment that that would be Jim's really last big scene. Is this the one that that I have with Barbara? Yes, it's I- where you're all at your house, and uh, Donna uh, is there, Susan Howard's there, and and Barbara and 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 Jock's there, and then. Uh, basically, your character says, you know what, I'm going to rip up this paper here. I don't need any money from the, the trust fund, so to speak. And and he was trying to let Miss Ellie know that, you know, just because he was Jock's son, he it wasn't going to change anything. And um, and then she uh, gives you your character a big hug. And it was very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting emotional thinking about it right now. Um you Such know, a I touching a, scene. I, I didn't have a lot of scenes with Barbara over the years. Uh, you know, for <laughs> for a whole year, I only got as far as the entryway in the living room. <laughs> there was, yes, yes. It wasn't an invited guest for a long time. Um, and I remember I had uh, that scene I'm a little fuzzy on right now, but certainly that sequence of events as it occurred, that, that changed Ray's role in the story for, yes. from that point on. So. Um, sure did. But I remember I had one scene with Barbara that was uh, five pages. 
this is unheard of in our in our script. That's oh, a wow. scene that would be five pages long. Yes. And I and I I'd only had a, maybe a, a couple of scenes, but Barbara Wright only have a few lines. And uh, you know she was just so gracious, and it was one of these kind of emotional scenes. It was an interior. I can't remember the the subtext of the story, but um, I just know that of all the scenes that I ever played in the in the episodes of the show, it's, it's one I definitely remember. It was my five pages I did it with Barbara. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, I always enjoyed those scenes you had with Barbara because Ray was always so respectful and, and kind and considerate towards her. I always admired that um, very much. Well, that's, that's what I thought about uh, the Western person that, I, that rounds out Ray. Is that One of the things is that they are respectful. It's yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, yes. from the time they're just little boys. It's always that, and uh, you always you always have your place, and you always respect others. So, well, you did an excellent job doing just that, showing respect to to Miss Ellie, and I always admired that in the character. I guess this is a wonderful time to to ask you about working with Jim Davis. I did want to say, Steve, that you know here is a man that worked so hard for decades, for many years. And it seems like this was really his big, big break. And it's very sad and ironic that it would only last a few years. But there is a certain sense of, of, of relief knowing that he got to where he was hoping to be, that he was a part of a really, really big production that people knew about, and people really enjoyed his character so much. And um, I wanted to ask you what it was like, you know, overall working with Jim Davis. Well, he was such a veteran, uh, having been in, I don't know, probably a couple hundred movies by the time we got together on Dallas. And he was, he seemed so perfectly cast. And then it turns out he was just really a great guy to be around and, uh, you know, easy to going and always got a, a funny story to tell or share. And, um, he, it was, it was really, great to work with Jim and, and we lo- I love doing like the western stuff that we did on occasion you know we'd all mount up and he's always so good on his horse and, uh, I think there's a story that I'll share that tells Jim's story in a nice way I and mean, you mentioned um, he spent a, a career uh, without getting to where he thought he was going to get and just sort of being he called himself the poor man's John Wayne uh <laughs> He oh. did a lot of B-Westerns, B uh-huh. and uh, he had personal disappointment in his life. He lost his only child, a daughter, uh, as a teenager in a driving accident. Uh, he had demons with uh, abuse of alcohol, and he dropped out of the business. And then came back in on a picture with Jane Fonda called uh, Comes a Horseman, Wild and Free played this character, this Western character, and that's what got him this shot in Dallas. So here he is on this series, and he's having a good time. He's working regular, and we're all getting along just great. And he takes a vacation with his wife. He's never been to London. And he's out there watching the changing of the guards at Buckingham Palace. 
when all the rest of the tourists that are there with their cameras are going, look, it's Chalk Ewing. Look, look here. It's it's Dallas. It's Chalk Ewing. And one of the guards had to come over and say, "Uh, Mr. Ewing, sir, if you could just please just step inside here, we can continue. So he came (laughs) home and he told this story. He said, damn it, Steve. I I just knew that I had finally made it. I was Finally, a star that people paid attention to. <laughs> oh, wow. That moment, so, no doubt. Yeah, I, you know, now I'm 72. That's not far from what Jim's age was. And um, when I think back about all of the senior performers that performed on Dallas, uh, Jim and Barbara and, and, you know, a long list of others, uh, and how much work it is to put in a full day and then put in multiple days. I just admire them all. I, I'm not so sure how good I would be at this point. It's just, uh, you know, it, it, it was just great that they were still working. And he, he, uh, he worked, he worked until, till he couldn't, till he finished the season. And, uh, you know, he had cancer and he was so brave about it. he, we did everything we could to help each of us and the company. And he, as he was treated with chemo and radiation, he lost his beautiful hair and he lost his memory and he lost his balance. And, you know, we would put him in a chair and give him a teleprompter and coach him and reduce the dialogue and anything possible to make it so he could still be in the show. And uh, he finished the season. And of course, he died of complications of the treatment uh, that summer. But he was such an example to each of us um, to about appreciating uh, what you what you get when you when it finally comes your way, and about uh, you know don't give up hope because you, it might come to you when you're seventy. That's right. It might come later than you expect. Yeah. Yeah, in his case, that's exactly what happened. Well, I'll tell you what, he was um, definitely such a big part of the show in the beginning, but he remained a big part of the show even afterwards with the, the portrait on the wall. I, yeah. It always, just looking at it, Steve, you just feel like you're looking at Jock Ewing, like his presence is just still there. And that says a lot to Jim. Yeah, no, it does. And uh, that that's... That, um I forget where that portrait is now. I think Larry had it for a while. <laughs> but, uh, <it> was, <laughs> I had heard uh, it. I heard that he that that might be true. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing those those memories of, of Jim. And I did want to ask you now about uh, a lady you worked with for for quite a while on the show. Um, that's Susan Howard. You know, here's a character that's politically driven and very intelligent, and and then here you are. Um, you know, this uh, this ranch person and, and, and the true cowboy of Dallas, as I often tell people. And, you know, they come from different worlds. And at first it seemed to – they got through it. It seemed to work. But eventually it really – it was too much at the end. Um, I wanted to ask you in general what it was like working with Susan. Well, Susan and I were very much of a team. Um, it became the, the – uh, uh, the Ray and Donna scenes. It was, it's a little bit of giving up, you know, when you're, you're always, now it's going to be Ray and Donna all the time, not just Ray or not just Donna, but so there was a little bit of that. Uh, but uh, it was like a second, 
second marriage. I, I leave my home and where I'm married and have children, and I go to work, and then I have my other, other my other wife, my TV wife. <laughs> you had two of them almost. <laughs> you know, we 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 didn't always see eye to eye, but you know, sure. We uh, we worked well as a, together, I think, and uh, it was a, a popular couple. There was. Yes. There was talk about a spinoff about uh, Ray and Donna. Uh, it never happened, but that's okay. Um, and, and we shared a lot in common. She's actually from a, a small town in Texas, and um, we we did quite a few uh, charitable events together. And uh, you know, I, I haven't. I, I tried to reach her recently. I, I don't have her current contact information, so I haven't spoken to her in some time, but. Uh, I think we we played a married couple for three or four years. Yes, and you know when your character first uh, what fell for Donna, really started to have feelings for her. She was married to the older gentleman, the politician Sam Culver. Yeah, and uh, she kind of disappeared for a little while after that. Steve, remember when maybe she you know she said she was going to stay with him because of his health, but then she resurfaces later. Yeah, you know, a lot of that is just uh, designing the the line for the storyline. You know, sure. It's, um, it's maybe a, a character many times would come in and you sort of test the waters. A few shows. How does this go? What do you think? And I think maybe that's how it was with Susan. So, you know, the, she came back in, and then there was a regular cast member uh, for, like I said, five years, I think. And you gave such a great, strong performance, Steve, um, after the character of Jock Ewing um, was pronounced dead from the plane crash. And uh, although the body was not, of course, uh, found, but your character went into a, a, a big time depression and was, was just, you know, basically broken hearted. Uh, such a connection to Jock. And it's interesting that Larry Hagman's character, Jr., was also in a, a depression um, where he just wasn't the same J.R. Ewing. You both had your own battles going on. But I wanted to mention that I thought you did an outstanding job showing that that inner hurt and, and anger. And, and it's interesting how the character of Donna re- remains you know, by your side and didn't give up, uh, even with the affair and all that that happened. But I wanted to ask you, uh, Steve, I'm very curious about this. So... Uh, when Patrick Duffy first decided to leave uh, Dallas, and we have that um, dramatic cliffhanger and swan song, uh, wow, I'll tell you, just so emotional, that, that scene. And, um, you know, so what would become known as the dream season? It's interesting. Donna was pregnant uh, the season before, and in this dream season, a lot of interesting things would happen with you and, and the character of Donna. And it makes me think of the young man that that played the deaf boy. Um, I I really enjoyed that storyline, even though it was very different than what you know for your character. Uh, it just really seemed to be gelling really well. You did a really great job, and so did Susan. And what was that experience like working with that young man? Well, that was that was pretty much Susan's idea. Uh, Susan Susan wanted to. Uh, reach out to uh, people that, uh, what is the correct terminology now? They're high, high, high uh, hmm. There's a certain phrase. Um, yeah, I'll remember it in a minute. But the boy that played the role was uh, profoundly deaf. And 
Susan learned American Sign Language as fast as she could, and he could read lips. He was he was he was a really smart and very good in his role. And uh, mm-hmm. Ray Ray, of course, he's not going to learn American Sign Language. So I I came I I developed my own sort of Native American style sign language. You know, that's more like Native Americans would be talking with sign language. And uh, so we did that, and. Um, it, it was it was it was a good thing. That, that season had a lot of different uh, changes uh, like that, and that's because uh, the, you know the leadership had changed. Leonard Katzman was not there, and uh, Patrick was not there, and um, you know there was new producers and a couple of new writers, and it was actually it felt like an opportunity to Susan and I and others to throw your ideas out. Maybe the, maybe they'll, you'll get some stories going. You know, with your suggestion, and that was one of the things that Susan had thrown out is uh, somebody that was developmentally challenged or had a hearing impairment or something like that. And uh, you know, it was it was very heartwarming to do those kinds of scenes and to work with the families involved and so forth. Um, but then, you know, when the shower scene comes along. Leonard Katzman returns, Patrick returns, Larry Hagman says, I want it back the way it used to be, and all that stuff was thrown out. I think, you know, a lot of people resented it. Uh, The number I've heard is like a 10%, but it could have been much larger. Uh, The audience said, hey, you know, we we got committed. You know, what what do you mean this is all a joke? But that's what that's what had to happen because there was no way to explain it other than to say that it was all a dream and, and we just pick up right where Patrick was before he left. So uh, well, That's very interesting because I'll tell you what, uh, Steve, when, when Patrick came back, well, first of all, I was absolutely overjoyed. But you know what, Steve, when I look back and I think of the dream season, it's very surreal to me because we know now that it's not really happening and it kind of has this surreal atmosphere to it. Um, you mean the, the whole season does? Yes. Like, like if, uh, if I see clips from it, it's like, well, this isn't really happening, but it's still fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for uh, digital mastering. Uh, we can all look at these episodes and uh, broadcast quality now, and it's such a gift because uh, I, I look back at my old VHS copies from a, a you know an antenna were just full of commercials and and a bad reception. Yes. <laughs> now, you, now you could just go to the file and pull them up, right? Well, and you know what, Steve? I have to tell you that I've never had a television experience like this before. But when Patrick came back, it almost felt like what it would be like if a loved one that we thought was gone somehow came back. It just felt that way, even though they were continuing right where things had left off. Uh, yeah. It was, it was very like happy that. to, it was great to have him back. You know, it was it, it very much like that. You know, I can li- change the story. Okay, fine. I can live with that. I, I didn't like to see him leave when 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 he dies. Uh, you know, it was not it's not hard to come up with tears. Right. And um, very emotional you know, scene. Yeah, I. Uh, I mean, to me, 
I've been an actor for eight years before I got on Dallas, and but never did I have the the scope of of emotions uh, that over the period of my eleven years on the show that I experienced on Dallas. It was like going to acting school for eleven years. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, there's a there's a lot of moments that I never imagined I'd ever be able to play that just became natural and easy for me. Well, so. you gave an outstanding performance, Steve, and I cannot wait to ask you uh, this question because I've never really heard you discuss it before. Uh, perhaps I just haven't come across the material. But a storyline that fascinated me, and that would be with Wes Parmalee, um, I was very, uh, this storyline just very much intrigued me. I found it very mysterious, especially when you started to figure out what they were taking the storyline into. But I wanted to bring up a moment, and I'm not sure if you'll recall this, Steve. It's funny how my mind works that I can remember these things. But I remember a scene where uh, the actor, uh, Steve uh, Forrest, was riding a horse, and, and you were talking to another character, and you suddenly looked up your character and watched him ride. And it was gave me chills because obviously they were trying to say that Ray was like, wow, this looks familiar. It's almost like Jock riding a horse. I've never forgotten that moment. Well, I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was you, a good moment. You Steve. got me there, Stephen. Uh, but, you know, you're mentoring Steve Forrest. Yes. Uh, we had so many wonderful actors uh, over the years that came and were on part of the show for a, a few shows or a few seasons, and he definitely was one of them. He sure was, and I really enjoyed his performance. And um, Was it true that they were perhaps trying to see if the audience would actually accept him as Jock, or do you feel it was planned that it uh, go in the direction that it ultimately did? I don't know the answer to that. I, I know that they, they did test things from time to time. I don't know if that was a test or not, but uh, uh, I suppose that's where that was heading. It's, it's, I, I can't really say, though, for sure. And isn't it interesting? I heard that he had a scene with Barbara where he tells her that he's not Jock Ewing, but it never aired. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's probably what happened. So Yeah. Well, think it's evaluated after they after they take the day and spend the money to film the scene. They go, "Oops, uh, we can't do that." <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps it was better this way. Kind of, uh, you could kind of use your imagination, and um, uh, but that, I really found that story very interesting. And Steve, one of your oh boy, one of your finest moments on the show was during the Mickey Trotter storyline, especially near the end. But actually, to be honest. The whole storyline, where you're trying to get him on the right track and to be more responsible, uh, and he was just being so rebellious, so to speak. And so, if if we fast forward with this storyline, you know, he's from Kansas, your hometown, and 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 he comes to South Fork, and you're trying to get him on the right path. And eventually, we would have that dramatic scene after he got injured in the car crash with Sue Ellen, the character, and you know, they decided to basically you know, end his life and, and, and pull the plug, so to speak, and your character is holding the door. I, I watched that as it aired, Steve, and I just remember that my jaw hit the ground. I just was such a dramatic moment on the show. It was, it was for me, too, and uh, I, 
I had a friend that had to go through something like that, and just I can I can remember I, I met, I'm a wad on the floor, spent weeping, blocking the door, just crumpled up. E. Patrick Murphy, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy, and uh, you know, but sadly he died. He died in real life, and we had several. Yes. Several other people that were cast members that died uh, when AIDS was a big issue, and people don't die of it anymore. But uh, but back then very, they did. Very sad. He became HIV positive, and he didn't last too long. So. And the trial was very dramatic. You, again, really just a great performance by you, Steve. I was wondering what it was like to work with the, uh, Kate Reed that played your aunt. Well, I was I was so grateful to have somebody like Kate, a, a, a proven uh, a New York actress with a lot of films behind her and uh, really great skills. And we were very lucky to have her in the show. I felt, and as I said earlier, the the senior performers we have a long list of them that that joined the episodes over the years, and, and there were really some great ones. And, and she was she was right up there. She was she was so fun to work with and. You know, uh, shortly after that, I have a, I have a scene that leads me to uh, to a grave site, and we the burial is over, and I go away, and and it's and it's it's there that I come to the gravestone of my real of my mother, and you just don't get to play these kind of scenes very often, and I remember I had to I wept, and. Um, they shot this thing and they filmed it and and then they said okay well now we have to go in for a close-up and I said oh my god I don't know if I can do this again I feel like I I just gave it everything I have I'm spent and Leonard Tassin was directing and he said well Steve we're going to shoot something else for a few minutes here and you go take a break and uh, come back and we'll get it okay so that's what we did but It was oh, you know, wow. I, I, those those kind of experiences for for me as a character of Ray Krebs. That now we have a backstory. Now we have some family. We have people that he cared about. They cared about him. That was all important to me as as I stayed on the show over the years because uh, it was missing. Yes, and this storyline would actually bring the viewers to such a dramatic and exciting cliffhanger when South Fork catches on fire. Uh, I just thought this this was just such a dramatic uh, cliffhanger. Oh, J.R. Uh, and I have a fight downstairs, isn't that what starts it? That's right. You just found out that the car that hit Sue Ellen uh, was actually aiming for Jr. And, uh, of course, all that happened to, to Mickey. And you walk in, and I'll never forget when, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jr. said, what are you, drunk or something? And, and you said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely sober. And, and then you mentioned that the car was trying to kill him. And then you said, your character, now I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Hey, you're about the last person in the world I needed to see tonight. I'm about the last person you're ever going to see. What's the matter with you? You're the reason Mickey's in the hospital. What are you talking about, Ray? Walt Driscoll was driving that car that hit Sue Ellen and Mickey. He was trying to kill you. You drunk? No, I'm cold sober. Now I'm going to kill you. 
and Ray went into a huge rage. And I was just wondering if you could share any memories of filming that exciting scene. Oh yeah, sure. The um, it, was, it becomes the cliffhanger of yes. the last episode of the season. Um, the 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 fighting sequence with Larry and I was in the living room, and uh, it kind of went around in a couple of circles over the couch, down the backside, around here, over a table, things get thrown, bodies going down, tumbling, punches, strangling, um, and all this had to be choreographed. We had a couple of real good stunt guys with us and probably spent uh, more than half a day doing that sequence, which is a lot <laughs> for a couple yes. of minutes. And um, so that was, that was real fun. And that was, you know, we both really enjoyed it, as I said earlier. Then, then the hard part came. Now the place is on fire. Now, now that fire is on a sound stage at MGM Studio. And it's a controlled situation with pyrotechnic guys that are in there that have little things that they can do with burners and so forth to create the illusion. Um, but there's, there's fumes and there's, things that come from burning and being inside of an enclosed area. And we did this sequence for about three days. And uh, by the time we were through, we were all sick from ingesting all this oh stuff. My. And <laughs> you couldn't, we'd run outside the, build, out the soundstage when there was a cut. We'd say, give me 10, 15 minutes, and we'd all go outside and breathe fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! But that, of all the all the uh, difficult things that I've done uh, in my film career, that was probably the hardest. Working that was a very exciting, very exciting indoors, moment. Working indoors with all all the fumes that was very tough. And you know what, Steve? Uh, speaking of confrontations, when Jr. remarries Sue Ellen, we have that big pool fight. Uh, really, uh, a, a very um, exciting scene. And your character, while they're all in the water, Jr., Cliff, and Bobby, your character eventually comes along, and he winds up in the pool with a few people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and how many takes? I mean, did you guys have to do? Like, how many times did you actually have to go and change clothes and start over again? Well, I'm sure we we were we we're trying to be conservative because that that wardrobe is ruined when you do that uh, yes. tuxedos especially. Um, and I have a wonderful photograph of us all in the water, uh, stuntmen <laughs> included. And, and that's uh, a great scene. Yeah, I think Timothy Murphy's still alive at that point in the show, and I can't remember everybody else that's in it. But yes, uh, it's a. Uh, you know, it's so hot. Nobody realizes we go to film in Dallas in the summer for shows to air in September. Well, we would be there in July and August, and without fail, it'd be 110 degrees on a regular day. And I, I was there in 1981. We had temperatures over 100 degrees on a 24-hour basis for 30 days in a row. So at 1 o'clock wow. in the morning, it was 101 degrees. Wow. That's that's pretty warm. That's pretty warm. Larry and Patrick <laughs> and I shared a big house then, and uh, we would be ordering 500-pound blocks of ice to be delivered to the pool so that you could go in it. It was like a bathtub otherwise. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you know, Steve, before we discuss when your character left Alice in that 
very emotional scene where your character says, a part of me is never going to really leave here. I did want to ask you about another scene full of action, and that is the Oil Baron's Ball brawl. (laughs) That was a very exciting scene where things got way out of hand. Um, But like you said, those scenes, you just uh, it takes a while to film those, doesn't it? Yeah, it's there... They're technical in nature, and yes. you have to, it's like a sword fight. You have to have, you have to do it by the numbers, and you can't change the numbers because then somebody gets hurt. So punches right. and falls and, you know, reactions, it's all the, it's all the same, but um, we were all good at it. We all, we all love those things. And well, Dallas always had great action scenes and, yeah. and a lot of shootings, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> I, I, I guess maybe the, the other boys would like to have been in a Western, too, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, before your character would leave near the end of the run on CBS, um, you know, uh, I did want to ask what it was like working with Howard Keel. Um, I mean, there's a man from classic Hollywood, um, and it must have been very interesting working with someone like him. He he was a, a wonderful role model. He... he uh he came to work happy every day. He'd be sitting in that makeup chair singing in the morning. <laughs> oh, wow. He, and he had such a beautiful voice. He always loved to he sing. He did. And um, we became uh, good friends. And uh, I have one regret. He came to a ski event that I produced that for a charity uh, for many years. It, it was called the Steve Canaley Invitational, S-K-I. And uh, I got Howard to come up once. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he takes a fall and dislocates his shoulder. Oh, my. <laughs> we're, we're, we're still in the middle of production. I felt so guilty about that afterwards. Oh, but he my. Was, he, was a, he was a good sport about it. Yes. And, a true professional. Uh, totally professional. And uh, yeah. everybody loved Howard. Well, right before you left, you, you got to work with Priscilla Presley. And I'm sure the Dallas listeners out there know all about that story. But I did want to ask what it was like working with her. And um, did you kind of see the writing on the wall, Steve? Did you feel that your character was about to be written off? Or was it a surprise to you? Definitely was a surprise. Um, And it was a great disappointment to me personally. Um, I was... I, as it had raised leaving, I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, I said, oh, well, we're going to have you right back. Uh, once, you know, next, we'll get the next season going. Well, it turned out they, they did not pick up my contract, and they, I only came back on rare occasions after that. But uh, working with Priscilla was fun, and she was a beautiful, uh, talented young woman uh, with only a little bit of acting experience coming in. Uh, but she uh, she adjusted nicely, and I think we all accepted her and took her under our wings and protected her. And except for the first day that she was on the show, uh, Patrick and I said, "Well, let's come on, let's go." We were in Fort Worth. Let's go over here and have some Mexican food. We don't want to eat this this uh, movie food today. So we went over to the restaurant and uh, had some. Mexican food and a couple of margaritas, and we were late coming back to work. Oh, said, no. said, well, this is a good we're way to get fun. We, we <laughs> thought we really had broken her in in a good way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm and sure she I appreciated. Think, you know, still, is such a sweet girl and uh, so so talented in so many ways, and she has beautiful uh, she has uh, beautiful skin that photographs so nicely on camera, and you know she she actually uh, while. While working on the show, she went through a pregnancy, 
and we would put her behind a couch and disguise her, uh, different things like that. Um, and I, I always enjoyed, you know, our scenes together. She was, she was uh, real fun. I, I'm going to segue. This is maybe one of your questions. But somebody said to me, um, how was it working with Brad Pitt? I said, I never, worked, I, I never worked with Brad Pitt. Well, sure you did. You did on Dallas. I said, I don't remember that. Said, I'm going to send you the episode. So there's the episode. <laughs> and oh, 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 he was the boyfriend to Charlie. Oh, oh, mm. right, right. Oh, oh, heck, I even directed him in an episode. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Steve, that's that's pretty big time right there. Yeah, and yet, yet I didn't remember it at the time this was brought up to me. I mm-hmm. felt like such an aging idiot. But um, uh, I think that was very, very early in his career. He did such a good job uh, that I didn't have to spend a lot of time um, working as a director with him. Uh, when my concentration was uh, with Shalane McCall, who played the character of Charlie, and it was... It was her coming out. It was her, you know, coming of age story. And, uh, you know, I was just trying to have her do her best work. And that's where my concentration yes. was. Did you enjoy directing? Um, it must have been very challenging. Well, yes, I enjoyed directing. It, it is challenging. But in the, on doing an episode like Dallas on a show you've been on for all these years, uh, it, it came naturally. Uh, you know everybody. You know all the backstories. You know all the sets. You know the entire crew. They're your friends, and they're supporting you. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got a few guest cast that you may be involved in casting and some locations to choose and some things that you're going to work for. But, honestly, I always felt like it was getting inside of a Ferrari and turning on the key, and the car would do anything you wanted it to. <laughs> hey, I like that uh, uh, perspective. That that's 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 a great way to look at it. And yeah, I, I yeah, have but- to ask you, Steve, working with Larry Hagman. I mean, so many uh, scenes over the years. Some very very intense, and some you know more on the fun side. But when you look back and think of it, I mean, how would you best describe your memories of working with Larry? Well, he he was. He was always a sort of a leader and uh, liked to be in that position. And he always had us surrounded with humor. Uh, he, he he was quite irreverent about a lot of things. But uh, from the very beginning, Larry had a series prior to this one, and he he knew what he wanted to try and accomplish. And even before the internet, he had in mind that you could work as a, as a group and a team and you could spread out and you can cover all the newspapers and radio and television broadcasts. And if you work together, you can build this show much the way people build their audiences with the internet today. Yes. And he was right. And, and we, we all went on everything you could possibly do and talk and talk shows and interviews. And, and it did help. And and we all did it together. So and he was kind of the, the you know the leader of that. And I appreciate that about Larry. And uh, we were personal friends. I, as I'm sitting here, I live in Ojai, California. I'm looking out at a mountain that's called Sulphur Mountain, and there's on the ridge of that mountain is where his home was. So I oh I, wow. I, 
I think about Larry all the time. Yes. Well, he's certainly unforgettable. Uh, yeah, uh, about it. you know, he, he, he always could find a reason to come up with a quirky smile <laughs> <laughs> in his character. Yes, uh, he could. And he was a very funny guy. He liked to wear costumes, and <laughs> uh, he's famous for hats and various costumes. And Well, now his look, Steve, okay, I've heard it referred to as the look. But that signature look, especially when the character is riled up, and I understand if you can't maybe recall exactly when you first noticed this, but when you think back, um, I mean, what is it like to have the J.R. Ewing stare coming your way in a scene? Well, one, it means it's uh, the focus. Uh, you're in the right scene, in the right place. Yes. Something's going to happen now. <laughs> and yes. uh, it's, uh, we don't know what it is, usually. You guys had so many wonderful uh, scenes together. And, well, before we conclude, I, I, I must ask you, you've, you've talked about him a little bit, but working with Patrick, um, I wanted to know what that was like, because the characters were truly not only becoming like brothers, like in every sense of the word, but also like best friends. I always enjoyed their friendship and how they stood by each other. And, he, and near the end of the series, Steve, when the Ranch War storyline, when you came back, rather quickly, I might add. Um, I thought that was a very exciting storyline. But what was it like working with Patrick? I'm sure it was a lot of fun. You know, uh, this was a very... I touched on this once. Patrick and Larry and I were all married uh, to our first wives, original wives, only wives, and all had children. So, and, you know, we appreciated that about each other. And then... It turns out that those guys like to fish, and they like to hunt, and that's what I like to do also. So we started doing those things together and hunted many, many times in Canada and across North America and went on fishing trips together. And uh, it was this great thing that you you don't find very often in uh, uh, sort of the uh, left-leaning Hollywood scene of, there's not a lot of outdoorsy guys like me and Larry and Patrick. Yes. <laughs> we were we were we were sort of exceptions. <laughs> and, well, uh, um, you guys were definitely rarities, no doubt about it. And I, I did want to ask you all the horse riding. So you you seem very comfortable on a horse. Uh, Patrick did as well. Yeah. Um, you know, was this something that were you you had to learn, uh, or were you already familiar with horse riding? Uh, on my first film, I did a lot of horse riding uh, in Judge Roy Bean, and after that, I made it a point to really become good because I think that's something that I might need to have in the future. So uh, I I actually uh, sort of tutored myself at a friend's place uh, and rode bareback primarily, and uh, then you really get a feel for a horse when you're riding bareback. So, oh, I bet. Uh, the, after that, I was usually very comfortable on ours. Uh, a quick aside, uh, I have a friend that got kicked in the head the other day, about three or four months ago, while trying oh, to catch wow. a horse. And, oh, wow. uh, and it just about killed him. Oh, my. And it, which made me think, and this guy's been around horses for 40 years. 
uh, about how dangerous it is to do these scenes with actors on horses with cameras, and they say, lope them in here, or run them over here, and do this and do that, and everybody has like this mishmash of, uh, of skill levels. Um, I look back at what is really about 50 years of being in this business, of all the times I did things on horses and some of the stuff that I did, how dangerous it was. Yes. And I really, I really thank the stars for uh, protecting me because it doesn't take much for it to all go wrong. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I love the horse stuff. And, um, you know, it was a signature piece for Ray that it, Ray should look good in a horse. Yes, he should. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> and and he did. So you succeeded, yeah. Steve. And I have just two final questions for you, and I'll just kind of ask them together, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, I haven't really asked you. Uh, we've discussed her, but not asked you what it was like working with Charlene Tilton. Um, always enjoyed your scenes together over the years, especially when Ray became more like a protector of, of Lucy and looking out for her interests. But when you also look back on the legacy of Dallas... To me, it's interesting how it holds up so well today. I mean, sure, computers and cell phones and all of that's, you know, not there. And, or if they are, it's very different form. But the story, the storyline approach of Dallas holds up today in 2018. And I think that has to do with classic storytelling. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts was as why you think Dallas, uh, is still so popular today, and and then of course working with Charlene. Well, Charlene has been a dear friend over the years, um, and uh, we we became bonded from the first days. And I this was at the 40th uh, uh, anniversary celebration of the series in Dallas with Charlene and Patrick and Linda Gray. And you know uh, we've we've all aged a little bit, but we're all still the same. So it was it was it was it was great to to see. Everybody, I, I have an explanation of how it became popular to begin with. I don't. I nobody knows why it held on, but at the time we designed the show, there were ho- American hostages in Iran. Uh, there was uh, double-digit inflation, uh, high interest rates, high unemployment, a lot of unhappy Americans, and then the this, this show about this fictional family comes up, and it's all irreverent, and they, nothing bothers them, and uh, people just found this fantasy family to kind of talk about, and they watch the show, whether it was Saturday, Friday, or Sunday night, they come on Monday and they talk about it. And uh, yes. it, it got ingrained. Or, well, did you watch Dallas? And people started staying home and watching Dallas. And then pretty soon you heard stories about countries that are just getting television, like Israel and South Africa. Well, that was like the rave. And if you weren't showing Dallas on television, there would be nobody in your building. Uh, <laughs> so every That's restaurant right. and bar had to have a TV. Um, I, if I could figure out exactly why I'd probably put up my own project together and go back to work, (laughs) but nobody (laughs) knows for sure. But I will say this coming from this, this uh, anniversary event, we had people from 19 different countries, over a thousand guests that came from as far as South Africa and New Zealand and all over Eastern Europe and, uh, South America and Asia, and they were all Dallas fans, and and it all meant 
something a little bit different, but but something similar to each of them. And you know, we got to see them each for a, for a few seconds, a minute, you know, as they passed through the line and had a photograph. But they were all together for two days or three days, and it was the most amazing thing. Um, it was it was it was totally moving, and uh, we had so much respect for all the fans after this experience. And uh, they they really are devoted. So to be a part of a, such an iconic show that has that kind of uh, following and appreciation is nothing that you ever ever could imagine. But it happened to us. Well, I'll tell you what it's, it's certainly my favorite. Uh, primetime show of all time uh just i will always have a special place in my heart and steve i can't thank you enough uh if the young boy back in the 80s knew that i would be interviewing you one day he would have been absolutely thrilled (laughs) thank you well you are most welcome and i want to thank the listeners for listening today and my final thoughts is that while ray krebs may have struggled to fit in for years on dallas The truth is that for us viewers, he was instantly accepted, and that's all due to the gentleman behind him, Steve Keneally. Thank you so much, and I'll see you on another episode of Hollywood and Beyond. Give my love to the children. I will, Miss Ellie. This isn't goodbye, you know. It's just for a while. Yes, ma'am. I couldn't bear it otherwise. Me either, Miss Ellie. Ray? Now that this is all over, who knows, maybe Ellie and I'll come over and visit you. I like that a lot, Clayton. Yeah. Well, Ray. Things haven't always been perfect between us, Ray. But right now, I, I only remember the good times. We had a few of those. You too, bud. I keep sending you lots of pictures of Lucas. The whole family. Sure. Bye. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. You can listen to Hollywood and Beyond anytime on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, 
iHeartRadio, Google Play Music, TuneIn Radio, as well as Radio Public. Be sure to subscribe and follow the show for free so you can receive the latest episodes delivered to your favorite listening device. Hollywood and Beyond, your home for meaningful interviews. Thank you.